In Israel and Palestine, the dust from the latest escalation of violence is settling. But the political landscape is still in flux. A new alliance of Israeli politicians has struck a deal that could see Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu out of power for the first time in 12 years. But things are shifting on the international stage, too. Ireland's government has supported a parliamentary motion criticizing what's being described as Israel's de facto annexation of Palestinian land. Here's John Brady from the Irish Parliament on May 26th. We will become the first European country to formally acknowledge that the crime of annexation has taken place. And while the EU has talked about the need for Israel to avoid the red line of annexation, we have the potential to bring Europe over that line. If Palestinians are living on annexed land, it means they're living inside Israel, without the rights of citizens, as opposed to the land of a future Palestinian state. The two-state solution has been conventional wisdom for a generation. Does Ireland's move show that reality is intruding on the international consensus? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. In many of his speeches in the Irish Parliament that day in support of Palestine, what came up was Ireland's sense of shared history. Perhaps there's no other Western country in the world which feels the same sense of solidarity with the Palestinian people quite like the people of Ireland. As Irish people, we don't have the luxury to pretend we don't know, to pretend that we don't understand. The memory and the consequence of colonization lives in the very marrow of our bones. So to understand Ireland's step away from the international consensus, we spoke to an Irish analyst who works on the Middle East. My name is Shelley Dean. I'm, uh, I do people's homework for them. I'm a conflict analyst, if you like, uh, and I look at the ways in which people try and negotiate their way out of crisis and conflict. Shelley has researched the parallels between negotiations in Israel, Palestine, and in Northern Ireland, which had its own decades-long conflict. Police say the clashes between Catholic and Protestant communities last night were some of the worst violence they have seen in recent years. A conflict between the two communities, known as the Trouble, started in the 60s and cost the lives of more than 3,500 people. And there's one question that Shelley is often asked in the course of her work with policymakers in Israel. Why did conflict resolution succeed in Northern Ireland where the Israeli-Palestinian peace process failed. I've found that the room is most likely there's more Israelis in the room and sometimes, all too often, no Palestinians. And not being Palestinian and being Irish, my, my default is to be able to say, well, this is how things worked in Ireland and this is why they worked in Ireland. And that might give some insight into how things might work better if applied differently in Israel-Palestine, for example. The worst of Northern Ireland's troubles ended in 1998, with a comprehensive peace deal known as the Good Friday Agreement. And Shelley sees a clear difference with the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. The reason the Good Friday Agreement has been largely effective is because it was a durable peace agreement. It addressed genuine concerns 
and it came up with recommendations to, to facilitate peace in the long run and in the long term. It wasn't just a security pact. And I think that's the fundamental difference. The most well-known Israeli-Palestinian agreement is the Oslo Accords, signed in the 1990s. Shelley considers them to be more of a security pact. It wasn't a comprehensive peace agreement. It wasn't an attempt at genuine reconciliation. And as a result, it wasn't a durable peace. The creation of a Palestinian state, the problem over settlements, which was a fundamental problem from the very beginning, the issue of Jerusalem, the right to return of Palestinians back to their homes, all of those issues were were kicked down the path to be dealt with later. And ultimately, that's why this is a fundamental problem, because a peace process requires this genuine reconciliation. It requires the commitment of all the parties. And if all of the protagonists are not included, all you're doing is postponing the inevitable conflict or clash later down the road. For many years in the 1990s, it was far easier to imagine a solution to the Palestinian question than to the Northern Irish question, even for some of those protagonists. Shelley remembers a story about one leader from Northern Ireland watching Israelis and Palestinians sign an agreement. At the time, Jerry Adams was watching that. Jerry Adams was the leader of Sinn Féin, which was the Nationalist Republican Party in Northern Ireland. And at the time, he was attempting with others to try and facilitate some kind of peace in Northern Ireland. And I was told by someone who was interviewing him at the time that he was having his cornflakes watching the scene in Oslo saying, we need this, we need something like this. This is what we need. And it struck the interviewer at the time and me when they told me later that ultimately what happened in Ireland was far better for Northern Ireland than the Oslo Accords ended up being for Israelis and Palestinians. I wanted to hear the Palestinian memory of those negotiations in the 90s, what's broadly called the peace process and the beginning of the two-state solution. So I spoke to Omar Badar, a Palestinian-American political analyst on the National Policy Council of the Arab American Institute. So I want to start with a big moment in the peace process. During the 1990s, both you and I were young, but... I'm sure you remember this moment. You had Yasser Arafat, the head of the PLO, shaking hands with Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. And President Clinton is standing between them. They're on the White House lawn. What do you remember about that moment? I was on the younger side when that moment happened. Coming from a Palestinian family growing up throughout the Middle East, lots of instability, lots of different Conflict essentially forced us to move around, and I believe we were in Oman in 1993 when the beginning of this peace process had actually started with that handshake on the lawn. And I remember thinking that was genuinely the beginning of a potential prospect of a peace deal that would create a Palestinian state and an Israeli state. And of course, looking at it in retrospect now, it's quite clear that this whole peace process was really a sham, wasn't a peace process at all. There was a lot of belief in that handshake, especially in the United States at the time and in the decades since then. The prospects for this so-called peace process have only receded. How strong do you think the consensus is in the United States when it comes to what's known as the two-state solution? The two-state solution is, at this point, not just a consensus across the political spectrum— 
but has become a bit of a robotic or pre-recorded answer to any question related to Palestine and Israel. You can ask, do Palestinians have the right to defend themselves? And a spokesperson for the State Department would respond by saying this administration supports a two-state solution. You can also hear it in this exchange between State Department spokesman Ned Price and Matt Lee, a longtime reporter for the Associated Press. They're discussing the U.S.'s position on Palestinians seeking justice at the International Criminal Court. So where, 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 do the Palest- where should the Palestinians go to get accountability for what they claim to be uh, problems? To Israeli courts? Where, where, where do they go? Matt, look, we, uh, of course, um, the United States is always going to stand up for uh, human rights. Uh, we're always going to stand up. Matt, that is why I think you have, that is why you have heard us continue Matt, to endorse and to where? call for a two-state solution to this long-running conflict. Uh, a two-state solution Israeli because courts? it protects Israel's identity as a Jewish and democratic state, but also uh, because uh, it will give the Palestinians go? a viable state of their own where and fulfill their legitimate uh, uh, aspirations for dignity and self-determination. Where do they go? I believe the current American administration and every administration before it understands that the prospect for a viable two-state solution has died. But they insist on using this rhetoric over and over again simply as a means of deflecting of having to deal with the actual substance of the issue. The beginning of the peace process, you had a little bit over 100,000 Israeli settlers living throughout the Palestinian territories that Israel was supposed to withdraw from. And at this point, The number of settlers that live in the Palestinian areas is more than 700,000. And the extent of the infrastructure that is built throughout the territories, hundreds of Israeli settlements, the annexation of East Jerusalem, we're looking at a situation where we really are looking at a one-state reality. Israel is the only governing body that exists that's really in control of the lives of the entire population in both Palestine and Israel. There is a Palestinian authority. It carries out functions like collecting garbage or taking care of education in Palestinian schools, but it doesn't really hold any real power. Ultimately, the Israeli government is the party that holds all the keys. It controls all of the borders. It collects all of the taxes. It's really in charge of all security. A Palestinian driving from one Palestinian city to another has to pass through an Israeli checkpoint. And I think American officials recognize that reality But they don't want to deal with the underlying issue, which is that no American official wants to hold Israel accountable. So that's the landscape in the United States. What about in Israel? What does the two-state solution come to mean to Israeli governments? So successive Israeli governments have made clear that they are not interested in a real two-state solution. In the case of Benjamin Netanyahu, the potentially outgoing Prime Minister of Israel, he's made very clear that there will never be a Palestinian state on his watch. Even during the peace process in the 1990s, an associate of Benjamin Netanyahu made clear what their vision of a two-state is, which is not really a Palestinian state at all. It is that you would give some scraps to Palestinians, some bandustans that are completely encircled by Israel, and that Palestinians would be free to call it a state if they want, or, in the words of David Bar-Ilan, an associate of, of Benjamin Netanyahu, said they can even call these areas fried chicken for all I care. And so that tells you something about the Israeli government's attitude. There's a lot of discussion in the media about the end of the two-state solution. 
but less so from governments, especially the U.S. and EU governments. With Ireland's move to condemn de facto annexation, do you think that the international consensus could change, could move towards admitting that a two-state solution is no longer possible? In principle, it is possible when you see growing recognition of the death of the two-state solution that we are potentially looking at a viable one-state alternative emerging as the only just alternative at this point. Because at the end of the day, either you let Palestinians self-determine and govern themselves within a viable state of their own, or if you insist on not letting that happen, which Israel has made abundantly clear, then the only viable just alternative is to grant Palestinians equal rights that the Israeli citizens enjoy. And nobody has made that leap yet as far as world governments are concerned. Nobody is willing to acknowledge that it's dead completely, precisely because they know what the alternative is, and nobody wants to spend the political capital to admit what the alternative is, which is essentially creating a state in which there is equality for everyone, which from the perspective of the Israeli government is a call to destroy Israel. When we're talking about the possibility of a one state with equality for everyone, it certainly is no call to destroy or take anything away from anyone except for the privilege of having more rights than somebody else simply because they do not belong to the same ethnicity as you do. This is, at the end of the day, for generations that have lived here forever, is home at this point. It's been many decades of multiple generations of Israelis born there. And so the vision of a single democratic state, it's not a vision that's trying to exclude or reverse anything that has already been carried out. It's simply acknowledging that injustice in which Israel was created and allowing Palestinians to return to their homes to live as equals with the population that actually displaced them 73 years ago at this point. It's not a call for revenge. It's not a call for reversing time. It is simply a call for charting a different path forward in which people can actually live together with the most basic values that are universally agreed upon that anybody with a democratic mindset would agree to, which is that every person's rights matter equally to everybody else's. That's what Palestinians are fighting for. One of the reasons that the two-state solution won't die on the international level is because many countries allied with Israel say that they do support it as a Jewish state, not necessarily as a binational state. So to them, perhaps it's not immediately clear what would be next without two states. What do you think some of the complications might be in changing track to one state? And if not one state, then what? So the fundamental problem with a lot of the countries that still pay lip service to the two-state solution is that none of them were actually willing to pursue policies that would have made it possible. And that's really the absurdity of it all at the end of the day, is that you have a situation in which it is clear that in order to push Israel towards a genuine, viable two-state solution, you had to apply meaningful pressure on them to move in that direction. If Israel came under meaningful pressure to allow for a viable Palestinian state to exist— we would not be here at all. And to find these governments that are responsible for enabling Israel's killing of the two-state solution, insisting on paying lip service to it at this point, really just simply makes no sense. There was another resolution in the Irish parliament, one that called for a comprehensive package of sanctions against Israel for war crimes and the crime of apartheid. And it also called to expel the Israeli ambassador to Ireland. 
it received 46 in favor and 87 votes against. Does that vote count surprise you? What do you make of it? Honestly, it fits into the general problem that exists in the world of everybody acknowledging that Israel's behavior is unacceptable, but then insisting that it cannot be held accountable for its behavior. It's not surprising because it's been going on for so long, but it nevertheless is infuriating that this remains the approach that the world is taking towards a country that is responsible for the longest military occupation in modern history at this point. That, I think, reflects the fact that there is a power imbalance on the world stage, that Palestinians do not hold enough political capital on their own to demand that the world treat them the way they deserve to be treated. And this is where the international solidarity aspect is incredibly important. You have a growing movement of the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, that is demanding precisely this, that Israel pay the price of maintaining an apartheid state. The only way you're going to put an end to that is through external pressure, where the world now has to act and decide whether it's going to continue enabling apartheid or whether it's going to choose a different path. So as we're having this conversation, the Israeli government is in the process of potentially forming a new government that will not include Benjamin Netanyahu for the first time in over a decade. Do you think it matters for Palestinians who the next Israeli government is? Will they find another Israeli government easier to work with than the one led by Netanyahu? The change in prime minister in Israel might have minute effect on the lives of Palestinians, but in the big scheme of things, the consensus across Israeli politics right now is one that is in favor of permanent occupation and apartheid. And because of that, a change in prime minister is not going to mean that much for Palestinians. Political shifts matter, but only when the political will is there. And that's what Shelley, the Irish analyst, says she tries to communicate when she's asked what can be learned from Northern Ireland's success. Northern Ireland is relatively successful. All things considered, Northern Ireland's peace process is a success. In discussions over Northern Ireland, the discussion tends to focus on how did the British military succeed when it succeeded against the IRA, or where were the techniques that helped get everyone past the logjam and the the tit-for-tat violence and the bombings. And the answers are usually ones that people don't really want to hear. They don't want to hear that you need to have a a process of knowledge and empathy, which some tritely call hearts and minds. You have to relate to people. You have to be able to understand what it's like to be on the other side. So an awful lot of listening is required. And the reality is that sometimes people don't want to hear that their military approach is flawed or that ultimately by controlling populations, you're undermining your own. But those are the kinds of conversations that that are had. The the issue that that comes up time and again is that there is no Palestinian partner. But the reality is that there is no Israeli partner for peace because there needs to be a genuine reconciliation. And sometimes when you talk about reconciliation, people think it's all too fluffy. But reconciliation is hard. Durable peace is not easy to achieve. It takes a very different kind of blood, sweat and tears than violence. But nonetheless, they're all involved. And that's something that gets missed, I think. It's hard to let go of the hope for the notion of a peace process or two states for two people. But while that image of the handshake on the White House lawn stands out in many people's minds, it's not top of Omar's. 
there was the peace process era and it was the era of handshakes that really stuck in the minds of many people around the world who were looking at this issue. But for me, it was much more about what ended up unfolding afterwards. When that process fell apart, we had another Palestinian uprising, the second Intifada. And during that time, there was one infamous video of Muhammad al-Durra, a young Palestinian boy sitting in his father's arms, who was shot live while the cameras were recording the actual shooting unfold. I think me having access to Al Jazeera and other news outlets that were covering this issue on the ground, they provided the raw images of what Palestinians were going through in a way that American media never did. And I think that also might not be the primary factor, but it definitely is a factor in the fact that Americans do not fully understand how horrible the situation that Palestinians live under Israeli occupation and apartheid really is because they never see it. And I genuinely believed that if Americans heard the story of Palestine, if they understood what was actually unfolding, they would not stand for it. I think human beings are instinctively inclined towards justice and fairness and equality. And I think that if people really saw and understood what life was actually like under apartheid, they would be unanimous in opposing it. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, Dina Kispe, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is our editor. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back next week 